I'm Beth Bennett, and I'm here on a beautiful spring morning talking to Buzz, and it's hard to believe given the normality of spring phenology with buds and little flowers coming out all around us that the world is such a different place. So my background, my professional background anyway, is as a geneticist. I trained back in the late 70s, early 80s as a classical geneticist, and this was before there was molecular biology, but then I did a couple postdocs and learned DNA sequencing, RNA sequencing, you know, eventually um, getting into genomic libraries in the last 10 to 15 years. So big spread over genetic research, and I taught a lot of different biology courses at CU here in Boulder, but my background as an athlete stems from the early 70s when I got into rock climbing and I consequently did a lot of first female free ascents in the Boulder area, the Front Range area, and I'm still climbing and doing all kinds of other stuff. So here I am, interested in the coronavirus outbreak, and I've been reading in a lot of depth as many studies as I can find about its transmissivity, its infectivity, what we should be doing in general and as athletes to keep ourselves well. Thank you, Beth. And in summary, you're a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Smarts is a very hard thing to define. We could spend an hour talking about that, but we won't. I think you're smart. We're smart in different ways. Everybody's smart in their own way. Well, thank you. You're also gracious. And you're also a way better rock climber than I am. But we are <laughs> going to wait. We're going to get into this because you're the perfect person to talk to. Being an athlete and being a, a serious scientist, I should note that you do have a PhD. So... You've studied this, so we're going to get into what does social distancing look like outdoors, are we safe, are we not, and some science-based opinions, maybe. But first, going back to what you said there at the end, uh, you are, are a locally famous rock climber. You really are a lot better than I am. And uh, I'm, of course, thinking about the first free ascent of the Naked Edge. Immortalized in film with my friend Lynn Hill. I was going to mention that. So normally we're going to do show links. So listeners, please go to our written show links because Beth has a blog, which is an amazing blog. So there'll be a link to that. You also do uh, a science show on KGNU called How on Earth. You are the podcast producer of that. We're going to link to that as well. Great. But should we also link to that video of you and, and Lynn, the oh, reenactment? Right. Right, we can do that. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. You know, the 80s were the year, uh, the decade of the hair bands and music. This is also the hair climbers also. I mean, you, you two were looking good back then. We That's had a long hair look now. back then. That's true. <laughs> Some things have changed. Some things have changed. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a great background you have, and so that helps the listeners have context for you know, the, the science base that we're going to talk about here, is that you are an active recreational athlete yourself. Right, right. And I do have the ability to read scientific papers, which is a skill in and of itself, and it deters the general public from really getting into science because people tend to write in jargon, which is kind of a foreign language. And although I am not a virologist, I can read the papers and understand the methods, which is really key. I mean, one of the things that I do when I read these papers is I look really closely at how do they do the experiment? Because one thing you got to realize about science is that scientists hate to say they're certain about anything. So if you do an experiment, 
you're really just testing one specific idea or, you know, as a scientist, I would say hypothesis. And you might get a, an answer to that that's pretty definitive or you might get an answer that's sort of suggestive. But regardless, you can't have a lot of faith in your answer until you do a bunch of different experiments and replicate your findings in different ways. And so that's the gold standard in science is replication. And this whole COVID thing is so new that there's very little replication. So there's an increasing number of studies, but still not that many. So in other words, you've just given us a disclaimer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you got to start out with the disclaimer. <laughs> okay. Okay. It just proves you are a good, a good scientist. You started with a disclaimer. And where we're going to start is with total acceptance and agreement with essentially all rules and regulations and laws. That's not what we're going to discuss. We're going to dis discuss how to apply that outdoors, how to fine-tune that. So, for example, here in Colorado, our governor has done a fantastic job. Back in March 26th, you know, the stay-at-home order went into place. Six-foot distancing is not a request, not a recommendation. Right. It's a state law. Right. And you have to do that. And the police have been responding to calls about that. Good. Yeah. yeah. Particularly here in Boulder, which is a college town. Yes. Yes. Um, so, just for everyone's understanding, we are starting with that as an acceptive basis of fact, and we're going to proceed from there. Right. So now when we go outside, it's very interesting. So I personally don't really want to go in a grocery store. I'm on a once-every-two-week schedule, and when I go there, I'm going to go literally when they open, so there's nothing in the air from 200 other people being there. And right out of the gate, my personal logical assumption here is that the grocery store is far more dangerous than anything I'm going to do outside. Just Agreed. Because when Susie go outside, we have diffusion, we have dispersion, we have ultraviolet, which is mitigating virus uh, longevity to a certain degree. So how, do, how are you seeing that? So first of all, I agree that enclosed spaces are much more dangerous, and especially grocery stores, because that's one of the essential areas where people are allowed to congregate. So I'm right there with you. Now, when you think about airborne transmission, there's a couple different things to talk about first. So let's start with the assumption that you're concerned about picking this bug up from other people. So let's start with those other people. They're breathing out. And as you breathe out air, there's, it's not a smooth flow. So it's what scientists would call turbulent flow kind of mixing. Imagine somebody breathing out a cloud of cigarette smoke, and it kind of swirls around. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that gives you an idea of turbulent flow. It's moving around. It's spreading in all different directions. And what you're breathing out consists of both air and um, moisture. And the moisture comes in a whole range of sizes. I'm sure like everybody else, everyone listening to this podcast has been sprayed by enthusiastic talkers. You know, people are talking loud, excitedly, saliva, gunk comes spraying out of their mouth. And if you are sick and you're coughing or sneezing, even more stuff comes spraying out. And this is where the infective particles are. They're coming up from the lungs and they're carried in this moist, warm cloud of air that you're expelling. And it's going to be kind of explosive. In fact, I'll give you a link to a really incredible video that does a frame-by-frame -frame analysis of, a, I think it's a sneeze, it could be a cough, that shows that explosive nature. And usually when a virus gets out into the air, like if we were studying viruses in isolation, they get out into the air, 
in dry air. People have done this experiment. They spray viruses into a closed cylinder and they measure how much time they can persist in there with still air. And they can actually hang out in the air for quite a while because they're very tiny, of course. And in moving air, however, there's a different story. Nobody's really studied this very well. So you've got viruses on particles of water that's coming out of a lung. And those particles are all different sizes. So the big particles are called droplets, and you can actually see those. And those are going to be heavy enough, they're going to fall out of the air. As the, as the size of the moisture particles get smaller and smaller, they can hang around in the air for longer and longer, and the virus can persist. And then you get finally to these really tiny sized particles that are called aerosols. And as the water evaporates, the aerosols that are left can stay suspended in the air for quite a while. So this is the big deal with indoor air. Those aerosol particles can stay suspended for a while. But with, with most of the particles, so most of them are gonna be on the bigger droplets, they're gonna fall out and land on surfaces. So this is the big deal with surface contamination and why you want to decontaminate surfaces and wash your hands really well after you're touching surfaces. Because when the larger droplets fall out and land on that. Exactly. The smaller so, aerosol particles, that's a little different. Right. And those, they're particularly influential indoors where there's still air. But then going back to what we were talking about a minute ago, I presume outdoors, if there's a one-mile-an-hour breeze, it's gone. Exactly. It's going to blow it away from you or whoever has been breathing out. Exactly. Well, good. Thank you. Uh, here's an interesting thing that just came out to my attention today, this morning. Oh, I should note, my apologies, we're recording this on Thursday, April 9th. Uh, things change so quickly, it's important to note the date of the conversation right, right. because everything we say could be shown to be incorrect, you know, two days later. So this is Thursday morning, April 9th, and I read a study from Belgium today, which I thought was very interesting. These are the people who did a lot of the research for cyclists, pro cycling team, how drafting, how close you should be to draft, get an effective uh, time advantage. And so they applied their same uh, data analysis to what you just said, droplets in the diffusion. And they they added to me, Beth, you can tell me what you think, they added to me a more improved take on this, which is the slipstream effect, which we, of course we know from cycling to be huge. And so they're basically saying, and they, they have clever little animations they've done in this one as well, if you're, say, running side by side, six feet is a long way apart. There's, there's just nothing happening because you're moving forward and the droplets are kind of going behind you to some degree of V formation behind you and your slipstream. On the other hand, if you're behind someone running, six feet isn't even close to being enough because of the movement. You're running in, the person behind is running into the person front slipstream of suspended particles that haven't dropped yet to the ground. So this is an interesting point and one which is probably debatable among mechanical engineers. And since neither one of us is an engineer, we, we can speculate. But the slipstream is what, of course, gives you that boost when you ride closely behind somebody because you're sitting in the shell that's created as they displace the moving air in front of them. But as you breathe out, you're creating turbulent flow. So if you imagine a flock of geese flying, they fly in V formation. And this V formation is kind of like riding a pace line because their wing flapping creates turbulent flow. So it doesn't slip straight behind them. It spreads out 
just like a cloud of expelled air will, will be spreading out to all sides. And so each goose behind the leader goes into a V formation to pick up the maximum amount of lift that they can from that turbulent flow. So you get kind of an idea of the range that we have to consider between turbulent flow on the one hand and then the linear slipstream on the other. So the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. Good. Good. That makes that makes sense. And you already did offer an excellent disclaimer. But but truthfully uh, and seriously, we have to take it all with some type of disclaimer because CV-19 is so new exactly. and people haven't studied this. And basically a year from now, we'll know the answers to these questions. Right. Or we'll be a lot closer, for sure. And for right now, though, I, I thought that Belgian study was, was, was informative mm -hmm. for me. I, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that because the logic is there for me. The rationale is quite clear right. for me. Right. And they basically said, if you're running side by side, you're you're basically fine, and according to their analysis, even in the diagonal, it was pretty good. But if you're behind someone, wow, you got to move like four to five meters back at pace. And then for cyclists, it's twenty meters back. Uh, so that's 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 interesting. And, and so my personal takeaway on this for you know, runners and walkers is that you basically can't run together on a single track trail. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. You kind of just have to almost come to that conclusion right now. Now, if you're right. on a wide multi-use trail where you can you know, go side by side and step mm -hmm. off and get out of mm -hmm. definitely get out of people's way mm -hmm. on a road, a street, that's different. But it, it would be a again, this is just my personal perspective. It would be somewhat delusional to run with other people on a six on a single track trail and maintain proper distancing. Right. I would say there's a couple of factors. This is a multivariate problem. And so I think there's a couple other factors we need to take into account. So if you're riding on a track inside, definitely that slipstream is going to be key. But outside, there's going to be airflow. Like we're sitting in a slight breeze. It's really mixing up the air. And, and there's also that turbulent flow that's going to expel air from the lungs sideways. So I think in moving air, you know, there's, you are moving because of your velocity, whether it's running or cycling, and then there's the airflow around you that's moving, and all these are really complicating factors that are going to spread those particles out. And then the final thing you got to consider is one virus isn't going to make you sick. Mm, right. So it's viral infection or, you know, infection in general by pathogens is a very, what scientists love to call stochastic. In other words, it's a probabilistic thing. You know, you go to Vegas, you get a hand of cards. What's the probability that you're going to win? <laughs> Pretty low. What's the probability you're going to get infected by viruses coming into your lungs? As the number increases, your probability increases. And with coronavirus, nobody knows what the infective load has to be. Oh, that's very, very good, Bessel. Two things there. One is that these tests, as you earlier alluded to, are done in laboratories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no air movement. Exactly. As you as you noted, scientists want to control for all variables. Exactly. Wind is a variable, so they eliminate wind. They eliminate all variables, which actually is not a real-world condition. Exactly. So here we are in Boulder, which is permanently breezy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. Still air is, would be a rarity, particularly if you go up in a mountain trail. There's always a breeze, and so the, uh, the slipstream effect is greatly, um, what should we say, less in effect, and diffusion goes up dramatically due to the presence right. of breezes. Right, right. 
Yeah. Diffusion and active transport, because diffusion is kind of a passive process, but with wind flow, it's very active and moving things around in different unpredictable directions. Right, right. Very good. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hmm. Well, it's uh, it's come up here. And actually, Vass, let's quick note. So what, we're doing an audio podcast here, but if this was a video, what would people be seeing right now? Oh, people would be seeing a beautiful day in Boulder, looking out from your lovely deck. We would see trees flowering, green grass, and things moving a little bit. And of course, we are maintaining social distance. Uh, I'm guesstimating about seven feet. Uh, yep, seven or eight feet. So listeners, in case you're wondering, Beth and I are doing a person-to-person podcast and we're using two microphones. We are outdoors and there is a breeze blowing. And we are probably seven or eight feet apart at all times. And indeed, I'm just going to tell people this because this is this is very cool. When you came over, Beth, to do this, thank you again for coming over. I left you out your microphone, which is still in, enclosed in its unopened plastic case. And you opened it wearing your gloves after you sprayed it down with the bleach disinfectant, which I had left out for you. And I think bleach is an excellent disinfectant. That's what I use, too. Ah, good, good. Well, just just, just to keep that one going just for a second, in our car, in case we ever just want to get gas, I keep this in the same thing in my car. And at home, I have an 8-to-1 solution of bleach to water. I don't use those handy wipes. They don't like throwing stuff away. It just creeps me out. It goes in the landfill. I can't stand it. So 8-to-1 bleach in a Windex spray bottle, and you like that too. That's exactly what I use, and I use almost exactly the same proportion of bleach to water as you do. I think mine is one part bleach in 10 parts, so nine parts of water, one part of bleach, so just about the same. I feel better about myself now. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And I just read a study yesterday, I think I came across this study, that uh, I was looking for studies on masks, so we'll come back to that. But they also looked at the efficacy of different disinfectants. And this study was done in China during the outbreak. Uh, So it was done late February. And this is very interesting, and I laughed when I read it. Because when they compared the efficacy of different disinfecting solutions, they actually used their hands. The investigators used their hands. And they um, sprayed their hands, not with coronavirus. Nobody's working with that in such uh, relaxed conditions. But they used uh, a bird virus. So it's not infective to people, but they could work with it. They could quantify it. They knew exactly how much virus they were spraying out and how much of the virus remained afterwards. So they used a soap solution. They used a pretty dilute bleach solution. And they used a concentrated bleach solution. And the soap solution was actually pretty good. They got rid of about 95% of the virus. The concentrated bleach solution was about 25%, which is pretty high, I think. And that got rid of virtually 100%. And then the 5% bleach got rid of about 92 or 93%. So soap is actually pretty good. So incremental gains as you get more concentrated. Right, right. So I guess the, the takeaway for me there is do it. Exactly. Whatever you're doing, just do it. Yeah. (laughs) The details don't matter. Doing it really matters. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's kind of like training, isn't it? It's sort of like training. The difference between sitting on the couch and getting outside and going and doing something is dramatically different 
than whatever you do outside. That's kind of becomes a detail that uh, elite athletes have to take a close look at. But for the rest of the folks, getting outside and moving your body is right. a big deal. Right, yeah. And, you know, this is kind of tangential to what we're talking about. But for people that are listening that don't know, the coronavirus gets into our lung cells through this enzyme that's embedded in the cells deep in your lung. And it's called the ACE2. And I won't tell you what that stands for. But it's involved in blood pressure regulation. So they just recently, a group, I can't remember where they are, but I just saw this this morning, that a group recently found smokers have more of this in their lungs, so they're more susceptible to infection by coronaviruses. And I would guess since athletes have good cardiovascular systems and our blood pressure is probably much better regulated than smokers, we might have fewer of these enzymes in the lung cells and hence be less susceptible to the virus. I can't believe you know that. (laughs) (laughs) You would not believe all the weird stuff in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll better just, yeah, of course my mind is racing at this point of time, but I think we'll spare our listeners that that line of inquiry and we'll just say, wow, that's impressive. There's the, the virus actually doesn't just go kerplunk, oops, I'm sick. An enzyme is this whole mechanism where you might or might not become infected, and that if you're healthy and active, and you have an excellent blood pressure, you have a lower, probably a lower concentration of that enzyme. So going back once again, how many times can one say that exercise is extremely good for your physical, mental, and emotional health? Right, right, yep, and it just keeps people from going stir-crazy with all this social isolation and distancing. This came up, as you are well aware, just uh, two nights ago, Boulder City Council entertained the notion that they might close public trails, which was would be, in my personal opinion, an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm. It would not make us any more safe. It would wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. So I've been working on that since then. I think you are doing a little research on that as well. Yes, because again, I going back to what we said, we got to be safe. And we got to protect everyone, not just ourselves. This isn't right. about me, you, or us. Right. This isn't about having fun. Uh, it is about being safe, but outdoor exercise has been scientifically proven, statistically validated to be the best thing you can do for your health. Right, right. And I have for years been trying to remind city council and open space that we should be looking at science and scientifically collected data to make decisions. And amazingly enough, even in Boulder, a well-educated city, people follow their guts. I guess that's just human nature. And so I think this um, discussion by city council was a step in that direction of you know following their gut and thinking, oh, people are congregating here. And granted, the parking lots are kind of congregated, but the trails are definitely not. Mm-hmm. So you don't think we should be getting our information from social media? Then? <laughs> is that I've your, never is that your opinion, so. Beth? Is that your... <laughs> but it is easier to read on Facebook than in you know the Journal of the American Medical Association. <laughs> okay, well, we, we're going to send everybody and read the show notes because links to your blog, links to uh, your How on Earth uh, podcast and KGNU you will be there. So if people want the filtered scientific jargon down to layman's terms, 
actually I should say semi-layman's <laughs> terms. I subscribed your blog. It's great, but I'm going to go semi-layman's okay. terms. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, please look in the show notes. You'll have that all there. And you mentioned something a minute ago. It's time to talk about face masks. Yes. Face masks are a little different. So I'll, I'll set the stage if you don't mind. Please do. As I mentioned, Governor Paulus, Colorado, actually the first governor I'm aware of was Newsom in, in uh, California. California, Marin County actually went first, to my knowledge, then the state of California. And then Colorado went, and the number of states went you know, pretty soon afterwards. It basically, it was around Friday the 13th, March 13th, is when the uh, dominoes started to fall into place, so to speak. And his stay-at-home order is state law, as I mentioned. But during this entire time, the CDC, as well as the Colorado State Department of Health, said, do not wear face masks. Like, whoa. Okay, that's sort of odd, but okay. And I think the reason is they didn't want people running out and buying face masks, and so people actually really need them. Our healthcare providers wouldn't have any, which didn't work because people did it anyway. I mean, the hoarding was just epic. It was a terrible thing to spectate. So now, just last Friday, Polis reversed himself, Governor Polis reversed himself and stated wear face masks do not wear medical face masks, wear cloth face masks instead. However, that is not a mandate, it's not a state law, it is a recommendation. Right, right. So when we talk about masks, there's three different levels of masks that we should talk about. So if we start with the most effective masks, those are the N95s. And we can put a link on the show notes if you want that shows a picture of what that is and gives a description. The FDA has a good description of all these types of masks. And N95s are made for two reasons. They're made for construction workers and healthcare workers that are at risk of breathing in very tiny particles. So an N95 will definitely keep out virus-sized particles. This is great. You just said something. just triggered something. Of course, I wasn't into the hoarding. I didn't go buy any mask. But just five days ago, as I was taking the time to clean up the house, I have a couple of N95 masks. Because I was a construction worker. Sure. This is for lacquer. When you're doing right. the, the spray on lacquer right. for cabinetry and things like that, that's really toxic stuff. Mm-hmm. So it turns out mm-hmm. I actually do have an N95 mask. Right. And so as you no doubt know from wearing those things, they're designed so they need to fit really tightly. There should be a seal covering your nose and mouth. Of course, they don't cover your eyes, which is also a potential entry point for virus. None of the masks will do that. Right. Okay. So... N95s will keep out very tiny things like virus-sized particles or lacquer spray. And they will also, you know, work in the other direction, although they're designed mainly to keep things out, but they will work in two-way airflow as well. So then there's surgical masks, which don't fit tightly. They're just looped around, but they're multiple layers. So this is really key. Mm. They, The paper that they're made out of is not... Um, fine enough. It's it's sufficiently porous that virus-sized particles can get through, but there's multiple layers, and so the droplets, the moisture-laden air that's breathed out by a potentially infected person, and again, we're talking about either way, coming in or going out, can be trapped by the material that the masks are made out of. So let's just clarify that. That's what we've seen all our doctors, all our surgeons, everyone in the operating room has to wear these, and that's so you don't infect the patient whose body's skin exactly. is, is open. Exactly. So that's a key point. 
point. It's not so they don't get infected, it's so they don't infect someone else. Exactly. That's the whole idea behind the surgical mask. But just like with N95s, it works either way. And then there's the homemade masks. And this is really a crapshoot because who knows what you make those masks out of. So um, if you make it out of the stretchy t-shirt material, you might as well be sprinkling holy water on your face. <laughs> because that stretchy t-shirt material is extremely porous. And just do the experiment. You know, breathe through a t-shirt. You can feel that moist air coming right through. The only study I was able to find about homemade masks, again, came out of China. And they used a layer of cotton, which is denser than polyester, than the stretchy stuff. And they layered it. So two layers of cotton and in between four layers of paper, some kind of paper. They weren't really specific, but they said each layer of paper had three constituent layers. So there's 12 layers of paper in there. This is not a t-shirt. This is not a t-shirt. It's not a bandana either. <laughs> so, you know, I, I applaud the idea that you are trying to protect other people and yourself when you go out and you're wearing a mask. But I would like to interject that based on what that homemade mask is made of, it might not be doing much at all. It'll catch the big droplets, so there is some definite effect. And I think going into a grocery store, it's anything is better than nothing. Right. So, so you're would, going into a grocery store, whatever it is, yeah. just don't even think about it. Right, right. And also just from the perspective of peace of mind of other people, I don't want to be freaking people out. And so even though I think when I go in the grocery store, I put on my little mask, and I don't think it's doing me much good, but I'm hopefully contributing to a general atmosphere that's a little more relaxed. And you know, now people are just so afraid and paranoid, I don't want to contribute to increasing that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. There are other reasons to wear masks. But what about the ultra band, the boof, uh, which athletes have been wearing? That's mm -hmm. essentially a t-shirt. Right, yeah, but you would roll it up in multiple layers, so each layer gives you a little more protection, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're cutting down on the big droplets, so that's good, because there's more of the virus in each big droplet, and so probabilistically, you're cutting down on how much you're spraying out. And a final point with regard to um, the release of potentially infective virus particles is that if you go to the CDC website, their whole basis for now recommending you wear a mask is the finding that they're asymptomatic carriers. So people can be infected with the coronavirus but not have any symptoms. And we have no idea how widespread that is because we're not testing everybody. We're, we're, hardly, we're, we're hardly testing anybody, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's the basis for wearing masks, is this finding that some people are carriers but not infected. But it could be, you know, one person in Boulder County is asymptomatic, or maybe I am, and, you know, we're talking to each other. So that's a big unknown. It's a huge unknown. I see. So the, the, the reason the CDC switched, our governor switched over, is because of the asymptomatic, asymptomatic carrier factor. Exactly. Because if someone has got the virus, presumably, they're, they're not leaving the house. They're under self-quarantine. If they're not, exactly. they should be arrested. And if they, if they truly have the virus and they're sick, even a mild case produces pretty severe symptoms. You're not going to be out running around. Right. So in terms of going outside, if you have any symptoms, you're, you're not running 10-minute miles. <laughs> you're not running. You're staying in bed, I think. <laughs> 
Gotcha. I see. That's interesting. Well, two other. Uh, uh, the math thing is so complicated. So we're, we're, we can't draw conclusions on this. We can note what the recommendations are. But two other factors I found, three other factors I found quite interesting is one is some people speculate that it keeps you from touching your face. But then other people say, yeah, but if you're adjusting it, it's actually not true. So I'm going to call that a wash. Right. I mean, I'm going to take right. that one off the table. Right. Yeah, Sorry. I agree. But a very smart friend of ours, uh, I won't mention him by name, had the brilliant thought. And starting two weeks ago, he wore masks in the grocery store to keep people away from him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's really quite smart. Yeah. So yeah. people go, oh, well, this guy's sick. I'm going to give him you know, 20 feet. And he said, great, I'm fine with that. Right, right. But now everybody wears masks, so... That doesn't work anymore. There's a wash, too. There's <laughs> a wash, too. We'll take that one Okay, we got table. two washes. What <laughs> two, else have we got okay, for me, what else? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tip one, my third one, Beth, which is something you actually just mentioned. And if you, as you, you've been over to Asia, as I have, and in Japan for 30 years, you know, people on the subway wearing masks, you go, wow. Mm -hmm. For Americans, we go, that's creepy. To them, that's not being creepy. Right. That's right. showing respect. To, in the Asian culture, which I very much admire, by the way, to wear a mask is to say, we're in this together, I care about you. It's a statement. Right, right. And I applaud that. And that's my reason for wearing the mask in the grocery store, is to mitigate concern of other people, because I don't want to contribute to that you know, social paranoia and unease that everybody's feeling right now. So I got one out of three. Third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, there was one of the Asian, it was one of the smaller countries, and I want to say Singapore, but I can't remember if that's correct or not, where they, they didn't mandate wearing masks, and their rate of infection was really low because they did uh, enforce pretty rigorously social distancing and actually stay-at-home orders. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to do this, but I have to be, get drawn into that one, too. As soon as we talk about the Asian countries, you've seen those curves. And mm -hmm. the Western countries mm -hmm. have these crazy growth yeah. curves. Yeah. And even though we're the wealthiest country in the world, we I'm searching for the adjective that would not offend people here. But let's just back off and say we're doing an extremely poor job of managing this, and we did an abysmal job of being prepared for this. We spent billions if not trillions of dollars preparing for things such as warfare that doesn't actually endanger us and we've actually cut back our budget on the pandemic preparation which does endanger us greatly meanwhile you go to singapore which was hit by sars taiwan places like that they had it together and they did things besides just crushing their own economy that worked extremely well and they absolutely flattened their curve Right, right. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Buzz, by saying that they were prepared because they'd experienced this before. The first SARS virus, which is another coronavirus, uh, hit them in 2002 and 2003. And it was pretty lethal. It's a lot more lethal than the current virus. But the advantage to that earlier coronavirus was that the incubation time was a lot greater. So people got sick almost a week before they were infective. And so it didn't spread nearly as rapidly because you could quarantine those people and treat them. But the lethality was about 10%, which Ooh. is a lot more than what we're dealing with now. But anyway, those Asian countries had that experience. And actually, we did too, because Toronto had a number of cases 
and it fortunately didn't spread to the U.S. much, but, you know, we could have taken that warning to heart. And over the last, oh, probably five years, I've read several books, you know, with the title along the lines of the coming pandemic, because right. epidemiologists are well aware that these viruses are constantly springing up. And with global travel, the likelihood of their spread, as we've seen, is really high. Right, right. Well, one aircraft carrier costs $13 billion. It's very effective for fighting World War II, which mm -hmm. happened 70 years mm -hmm. ago. And uh, That's a lot of tests, $13 billion. $13 billion. I think I ran that out. That was four N95 masks for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America for the cost of one aircraft carrier, which protects us against something that already took place. Uh, so it's... Uh, that would be a whole other podcast, Beth, a whole mm -hmm. other conversation. Mm -hmm. So pardon me for going into that. But I, I get a little irked about this. Sure. You know, I do too. You're a scientist. I'm a business person by nature. We want things to work. Right. You want right. things to be uh, correct and valid and fact-based, and I want things to be effectual and functional. And I'm sometimes dismayed at the political environment, which doesn't do either. Instead, tends to posture and do things that do not keep us safe right. at all. right. Right, and it tends to be very reactive, because if you're proactive, then you end up spending money for a problem that doesn't exist, and people don't like that. Right. And in general, I find that our society is not very proactive about most things. Like, you think about health. We have this horrible health insurance system, which is totally other can of worms <laughs> that we won't get into either, but it spends a lot of money reacting to problems when it would be a hell of a lot cheaper to be proactive and prevent those problems to begin with. Right, right. And the pandemic's a, an obvious example. I mean, we're borrowing $4 trillion. $4 trillion? Wow. That's, that's a chunk of change. Yeah, absolutely. And so for one one thousandth, one one millionth almost of that, preventative measures mm -hmm. would have been mm -hmm. dramatically more effective. Right, right. Okay. Sorry about that, Beth. But, uh, <laughs> That's okay. It's hard to separate that political reality from the scientific and biomedical reality because it's, that's what pays for it is politics. That's what pays for research is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. Well, Beth, this is wonderful to have an informed opinion, very factual-based thoughts on this. And we delved into, again, starting with the fact that we definitely, obey all laws, obey all regulations, and take care of each other. That is the starting point as an assumption. Definitely do that. And we've teased it out a little bit, indicating that outdoors, in some general sense, can be viably credited for being a safer place than indoors. Absolutely. Just, I would absolutely agree I mean, you that. can cite numerous studies that aren't exactly what was taking place now, but certainly indicate the right. diffusion, dispersion, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, in a court of law, enough circumstantial evidence will convict. So okay. we got some circumstantial evidence here. Okay. All right, Beth. Well, uh, what are you going to do here in the rest of this lovely spring? <laughs> I'm going to get some outdoor exercise here. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I believe in that very strongly. I keep social distance from people. But I get out and try to stay healthy and take care of myself. And that's mental health as well as physical health for sure. And I note that as always, you bicycled here. Always. Always. And um, no matter, even if you're carrying gear, groceries, you're on the bike. As much as I can be. Thank you very much, Beth. Thanks for having me, Buzz. This was lots of fun. <laughs>